and understanding this is really, I think, the key to putting it all together. And uh, there's so many aspects for uh, to look at here to help us better understand, you know, where we're at and what we're up against. You know, Christianity is is in a as we are is in a fight for our life. I mean, uh, from a spiritual standpoint, I have never seen a time where you know, indifference toward the Word of God. And I'm not talking about God's people, you know, and, and just the way people... Uh, I talked to my wife about it, you know, and, and, and some of you older guys like John probably understand what I'm talking about. We've been been around for a while, you know. We grew up in an era where the Bible was still fundamentally um, respected by everybody and, and everything. And, you know, and today it's a thing where people just don't listen and hear what the Word of God is saying. And it's an it's incredible, incredible thing. I think it's important, especially if you're going to ever be in the ministry uh, in this church or wherever, that you, you understand how this happens and you understand the cause and effect for it. So, you know, personally, uh, this one on church history that we're doing right now, I think it's probably the most in-depth and the best that I've done uh, probably of any time that I've done it. And I've done it many, many, many times. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure that, uh, and there were times when we were down to maybe five or six people that came. And that, that, uh, that didn't distract me from what I wanted to do. And that is I wanted to have a absolutely accurate, the best in-depth cover all the bases that I could have for, for not only for those of you that are here, but for the future references to, oh, and Joe's been doing an excellent job of kind of correlating it, and I'd like to get it into a book form at some point based on what he's done. But, you know, we're in the final phase of this as far as the Laodicean church period. We've seen in, during this last four or five weeks, we've seen the Reformation, we've seen the Counter-Reformation, I took the time to show you uh, around 1900 the three things that the devil put in that began to deteriorate um, Bible Christianity and its impact, the neo-orthodoxy, the evangelical, and the, obviously the charismatic movement. And I showed you, you know, along with that, how that the Counter-Reformation, we looked at what the Jesuits did, um, and... Uh, uh, we looked at basically, starting from 1900, the spiral down uh, of this country, and you can almost track the spiral down of every country. I heard a preacher many, many, many years ago say something that is absolutely true, and it's one of the most profound things that I, I ever heard a man say, and then validated it by going back and checking it. And he made this statement. He said, no country, no country on this planet ever lasted more than 200 years after it rejected the Word of God as its final authority. And, uh, you know, I heard that 35, 40 years ago. And at the time, I was young like most of you, and, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was something that he said, but I had no correlation to it. But, you know, 40 years later, and all the time that I've spent and studied, I understand exactly you know, what he's saying. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's exactly true. It's absolutely true. There has never been a country on this planet in the history of this country that has ever survived 200 years after it rejected the Word of God. Now, it may still be a country, but, I mean, it's spiritually dead and it's worthless. And that's true uh, just about all the way through. Uh, we saw the come through, and I showed you in the Laodicean the last of the old breed, uh, the old generation. And then I showed you my generation, and I gave you names and people and places and churches. And I showed you that my generation was, was the last of the Philadelphian pre uh, preachers. And, you know, these are men who many of them started out building their churches, believing the Word of God, but wind up 30 years later in the 70s and the 80s uh, not believing the Word of God anymore. And then I showed you how it produced the new generation. And this is the generation that, you know, came after my generation. 
And this is the pastors that are pastoring today. And, um, you know, uh, they're absolutely worthless. They have absolutely no understanding of what they're doing. And uh, it's just, you know, it's, a, it's an absolute downward spiral how this thing is going. There's a great contrast between the church of the open door and the church of the closed door. And tonight, I want to come to the main event. We're going to start a study on manuscript evidence tonight that's going to help you uh, understand how all this happened. And I've given you basically the, uh, the, the, the events that have taken place. Now I want to go back and I want to show you within these events the underlying thing that happened. You've got to see and understand how this transpired. And uh, I, we've, we've studied the two lines, and I've showed you the line from Alexandria, and we've watched how that started with the, uh, their children and their grandchildren and how it developed into the liberal uh, side of things with the, uh, the, the amalgamated mess of the church with no Bible and no principle and destroying all that through the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, but the church that we're talking about tonight is the church line out of Antioch how it got nullified, and how it lost the power of God. You know, I know I teach church history on a broad spectrum and try to put it all together, but the problem is, is that there was a time when the church out of Antioch was doing the job beyond belief. That's the church today that has been corrupted. And it goes back to that old infallible cycle that we talked about very early on, man, movement, machine, and a monument. Everything follows that cycle. We find that the church at Ephesus, the name Ephesus means fully purposed. The church at Ephesus, as the Laodicean church, when it began the Laodicean church, they were both equipped to do the job. The Laodicean church didn't start uh, on day one of Laodicean church period being corrupt. No, no, it had the same book that they had at the church at Ephesus. And it's interesting to me to know that the first period in church history and the last period in church history both go the same way. They both start out with the Word of God. The church at Ephesus got the Word of God from the apostles themselves, and they were fully purposed to do the job. And then the church of Laodicea had the Bible from the Philadelphian church age. They had it. And both of them make the same mistake when they they lose their first, they leave their first love, lose their first love, which is the Word of God. And uh, both churches uh, follow the same line. Both sell the Word of God out for the same thing, education. And, and a remnant, in both cases, a remnant carries on. The difference is that the remnant in the church at Ephesus period carries on through the church age. The difference is our remnant is just going to be for a short period of time because the rapture is going to come and, and we, uh, it, it's going to be over. I told you last week, and I, I reiterated it on Sunday, uh, the great concept that no matter how it looks, no matter how it appears, the truth of the matter is things never really change. And um, it, it's, that is such a true statement. So I want to go back again beyond uh, or at the Reformation, and we're going to look at it from a different angle this time. And uh, we'll, we'll overlap a few things that we said. We, we, we're going to go back into the Counter-Reformation for a moment. You understand that. I'm not going to take the time redefining that. But we now have a basis to work with. And uh, we talked about the Roman Catholic Church getting control of all the educational institutions uh, during the Counter-Reformation. We saw the events of that, how that for the next three or four hundred years, the Catholic Jesuits infiltrated everything that, that, that was done. But there was more going on at that particular time. And the devil never misses a trick. I don't care if it's in your personal life, my personal life, or the confines of church history, or the confines of building a New Testament local church. The devil will always get in the details. And this is why, if you want a life that is as least de devil in your details as you can have, possibly have, and you can't keep them all out, but if you wanted it nil to nothing, the, it goes back to what I tell you all the time, you have to operate by biblical principles. Biblical principles are the only way to build a New Testament local church. 
If the book says that's what you do, then that's what you do. Popular opinion doesn't enter into it. People getting mad or glad or happy because of how it works never should enter into it. And that's the only way you can have a New Testament local church. People come and people go, but the book always stays the same. You don't alter your church around the book. I mean, you don't alter the book around your church. You alter your church around the book. And that's just the way it has to be. And church history is the same thing. Church history comes, church history goes. The seven periods of church history weave their way down through history. The book stays the same. It's the same book today as it was at Ephesus. It's the same book today as it was for us. And of course, uh, uh, but already, already, uh, long before, uh, as soon as the Reformation took place, uh, there's a couple of books, and I, I don't, I, uh, you know, the back there that'll, that are good for you, we'll talk about it in a minute, but all the way back in, uh, at the, you know, the Reformation takes a place about 1550, 1560. King James Bible comes out in 1611. Uh, Richard Simon, who was a priest, and Pierre uh, Sabatai uh, was a Benedictine monk. As early as 1689, these men wrote four editions a four-edition work on the destructive criticism of the King James Bible text. The Bible had no more been printed out than these guys went to work coming up with a four-volume edition that basically, uh, in a destructive way, took apart the King James text. It was published in 1695. And this was the foundation. This was the foundation that the children and the grandchildren and, may I say, the bastard children of Alexandria, Egypt, was going to use to throw out the King James Bible in Europe by the time we get to 1900. And, of course, that's exactly, that's exactly what they do. Things never change. The accredited Bible colleges of the day, uh, you know, uh, they, they, they follow the same thing as the secular colleges of the day. One of the things that you want to remember, and I cannot stress this enough, and I, I am very somewhat in control of it uh, in, when I preach and, and don't make a lot to do about it, but if there's anything that I absolutely abhor and absolutely detest, and if I had it within my power and enough C4, <laughs> I would blow every one of them to smithereens and machine gun everybody to the ground and feel really good about it. It would be the institutions of higher education. Every communist movement, every communist movement before a country fell to communism in the secular world, the seeds of communism started in the higher areas of education. Every one of them. The communists knew that the fresh minds of, of the colleges with the kids is where the seeds of revolution would take hold. And every overthrow of every government, I don't care if it's Hungary, I don't care if it's San Salvador, I don't care if it's Nicaragua, I don't care if it's Cuba, I don't care where it's at. Every country that went communist the movement started within the higher education circles of the secular educational system. And I take that one step farther for the Bible colleges. Every damnable heresy that destroys young men and destroys the Word of God started just like the communism that took over the world started in the secular universities. The idea that the Bible was not the Word of God and you could not trust it and you give up your Bible for the God of scholarship started in an educational system. I am so, and I, I play the game because people don't understand, and I could get foaming at the mouth really quickly. And uh, so I got to pull myself back a little bit. And uh, I've had people say, well, you're, you're anti-Bible college, and I'll answer with the right political correct term. No, I'm not really anti-Bible college. I'm just really pro-church. And that may be true, but that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a wimp's way of dealing with it. And I hate myself for dealing with that way, but you know what? People don't understand, would not understand my anger. 
So I have to, I have to vent my anger other places and keep that under wraps because I would, I could, I understand that they are the most demonic, they are the most, they are the most destructive force, and I have seen over my 40-some years hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young men and young ladies faith destroyed in that book by guys who get up and, and preachers and young kids who go to Bible college under the, under the canopy of learning the Bible, and all the time, all they do is get the Bible taken from them. And I have, I, I hope that God has a special place in hell for people, and I'm sure he does, for according to the book of Matthew, for people who destroy young people's faith uh, in the Word of God. Higher education is and, and always has been the medium of spiritual apostasy in every generation for over 1,800 years. Over 1,800 years. You'll find that the great balance goes all the way back to uh, uh, the early church, where you find the church of Antioch versus the University of Alexandria, Egypt. And it's, it starts from there. You find it all the way back where Genesis chapter 3, when the devil came to Eve, the, the, face, the, the bait was, uh, you eat this fruit, you'll be like the gods, knowing. And man's desire to know, like the gods, is exactly what puts men to get a Ph.D., uh, a doctorate degree, and then puts themselves in a Gnostic class, as we've studied in Gnosticism, where they become higher than the common ordinary people, thinking that a higher education gives you a, a, greater, uh, a greater degree of spirituality with God. Higher education produces humanism, materialism, whether it's a secular university or a Christian university. They're absolutely worthless. They're absolutely, I have never met one anywhere, any place, any time that was worth the powder to blow it to hell. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. So the King James Bible is no more on its way than an underground movement that's going to bring itself into focus through the educational system, both secular and Christian. It's on its way to destroy the true text. It's no great surprise to find the Jesuits posing as English clergymen. We talked about this at the time, at the time from about 1611 up to the time that we live in today. A doctor, Degatius, a former priest, wrote a book called The Popery and the Jesuits in Rome. He also wrote a book called The Secret History of the Oxford Movement. On the Popery and the Jesuits on page 120 up to page 134 and page 33 in the secret history of the Oxford movement, he says that the Jesuits used 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 19 through 22 as the scriptural basis for swearing false oath to the Anglican and the Lutheran priesthood and then infiltrating them, posing as Protestants to destroy that church and bring them back to, uh, to Rome. And, of course, that is a verse where uh, Paul talks about the fact that he became all things to all men, that he may win some. The Jesuits took that idea that the winning them was to bring them back to the mother church, so it was okay to, to deceit and lie, swear false oath, Go into Protestant churches, pretend you're a Protestant clergyman, and then bring them back to the Roman Catholic Church. And that's exactly what they did, and that was the verse that they, they, they used it for. And uh, what you have here, and I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13, is a, is a fulfillment of this prophecy in Matthew chapter 13. And uh, these prophecies, uh, these parables in Matthew chapter 13 are some of the richest stuff that you'll ever get into, uh, and the depth of them are just unbelievable. Now, I want you to look at verse 33 of, of chapter 13. Now, here's the parable of exactly what happened during this time period, and it strikes right at the heart of what, you know, took place. He says this, Another parable spake he unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leaven. Now, we know that leaven in the Bible 
Uh, we know that leaven in the Bible, in Galatians 5, 9, and Matthew 16, uh, verses 6 through 12, and 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, is false doctrine. We know that. And uh, we talk about the Bible where it says a little leaven leaven the whole lump. We also know in the Bible that meal here uh, will be a picture of people. Now, what you have here is a woman. That woman will be the Roman Catholic Church, the great whore, Revelation chapter 17 and 18. The woman taking leaven, false doctrine, and hiding it in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. The three measures of meal there that we're talking about will be the people that are involved in the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, and the churches of the Reformation. And that prophecy right there is a prophecy of the Roman Catholic Church taking the leaven and completely destroying all three branches of the of the churches that are in existence at that time. We know that the Greek church breaks from the Roman Catholic Church. We talked about that. The Russian Orthodox comes out of them, but they're two separate branches. And then we have the Protestant churches. And here's a prophecy telling you that a woman is going to take leaven, false doctrine, and mix it into three, three meal until all the lump is leavened. And that's exactly what she does. That's exactly what she does. And of course, uh, this is exactly uh, the prophecy being fulfilled, and we see it fulfilled. You know, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, where he says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Brother, that is an understatement. By the 1800s, the body of Christ, though doing a tremendous job, because we're still in the Philadelphian church age, we're starting to feel the pressure of professional religion and higher education. Remember now, it's at the end of the 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s, that we, and we've talked about this, where we see the neo-Orthodox, a redefining of theology, the neo-evangelical, taking, the, taking the, uh, uh, the doctrine in the Bible from man and putting it back into the higher realm of education. And of course, the you've got to have a village idiot in everything you do, and that would be the charismatic movement. And uh, they are the flunky thing that means absolutely nothing. They go around wearing a clown suit, preaching about Jesus, and, and they're, the, they're, the, they're, the, they're the village idiot when it comes to church history. I mean, uh, it's, it's, but we see this thing happening. And uh, we see uh, England, the country that gave birth to the Philadelphian church, they go first. And one by one, Rome did the job through higher education and scholastic achievement. It took the place of the first love that used to be the Word of God in people's lives. Now, it's, to me, history is always relative. I look at history completely different than most people. I've been so long in the Bible, so long comparing history in the Bible, that I don't look at history anymore without any relevance to the Bible. I know now clearly that all history is nothing more than God doing something that he wants to do, uh, fulfilling his plan, and, and, and the devil moving in opposition to that. I'm so shocked and shot through with that that I can't watch or read anything about history without making it relevant right to where the Bible is. 1492, Columbus found what we know as America. He really didn't, but he, he's credited with founding America. But he certainly opened the door to the uh, to the exploring of the new world. And you'll notice that uh, God had a plan for that. And you'll find that uh, Columbus really doesn't discover America. He finds a little Caribbean uh, island down there called San Salvador, not the country, but a little, uh, and he claims that. But he's given the credit for finding America. He is financed by Spain, Spain's Roman Catholic under Ferdinand and Isabella. And of course, we know that uh, he opens up the doors of the Spanish, and Spanish run by the devil, Roman Catholic Church, and this is when all your conquistadores come over, and Magellan, and uh, Cortez, and uh, Vasco Gama, and Ponce de Leon, and all of the rest of them, and uh, uh, Coronado, and uh, they all they all get over here, and uh, they try to they try to they try to get everything for for the Roman Catholic Church. 
it's interesting to notice how God, and I've mentioned this to you before, you may have forgotten, how God preserved America and kept America intact that the Roman Catholic Church never made it a colony. And of course, you go back and you study it, and you'll find that uh, Christopher Columbus, uh, on his course, was coming straight for the East Coast and would have found America, but this, him being the first one out and everybody being superstitious about the uh, sea monsters, uh, Job 41, 42, and, and all the things that are out there, and his crew was just about ready to panic and overthrow him and head back to uh, the Spain, uh, he sees birds that are land-based birds flying, and so he sets the course for all those birds. And what God did was get him off course from going to America and then take him south where uh, everything that he touched and everything that the guys following him touched became Roman Catholic, but the United States was reserved for the Anabaptist, the Dutch Baptist, uh, who came over on a Mayflower and uh, to establish a foothold with the Geneva Bible, which was the forerunner of the King James Bible. So I look at things like that, and I see, I see the relevance to the Bible. I think that it, the really way to study history is to get the Bible down first and then run all history through the Bible. I think that you can take that and you can study the rise and fall of every country, the rise and fall of, of every movement in every country down through history will be based on what that country does with the Word of God or where God is doing with the Word of God in proximity to where uh, that country is at that particular point in time. In 1492, uh, Columbus uh, found the United States of America. Uh, from that point, we know now that uh, the Word is out, that there is land to the, to the West. And what follows is a, a great vast, uh, over the next couple of hundred years, is a great vast uh, opening of people uh, leaving, uh, exploring, which is going to lead to the fulfillment of the prophecy in Genesis chapter 9, where the Bible says that God will enlarge Japheth, and he will dwell in the tents of Shem. And that is a reference to God taking the European who has come from Japheth, enlarging him, bringing him to the United States. And as we speak tonight, us as Japhethites, we are living in the tents of Shem. We are living where the Sioux, the Blackfoot, the, the Crow, uh, the Chickamauga, and the, all the other Indians lived. And we are basically living tonight in Kansas City in the tents of Shem. And of course, that was the prophecy that began to be fulfilled. God knew that he was going to expand the European to bring the gospel to this country, that this country could be the foundation, we've talked about this before, to reach the world. Therefore, he excluded the Roman Catholics. He kept them down south. He let the pilgrims, the Bible believers, hit Plymouth, and uh, they began to develop it, and then we saw the United States develop from that. But in 1492, my point being, the door is open. That is going to eventually, in about 100 years or so, lead to the Bible believers coming to America to establish this country on the free principles of the Bible, the Bible that you hold in your hand. So it's no accident, well, that, that God is opening up that door over in Rome in 1481, just a couple of years before that, about 11 years before that, uh, in the Vatican. They're doing some work in the Vatican, and, and the Vatican is a vast has been built over many, 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 many times in all of the uh, almost 15, 1,600 years it's been in existence. And uh, the Vatican is a great, a great treasure trove of secret places, walled-up places that people have forgotten about for 800 years. And they knock a wall and they find a room. And lo and behold, in that room, we find what a, a manuscript that becomes to be known as the Vaticanus Manuscripts. And uh, they're found in the Vatican in 1481, just 11 years before the door gets opened. It's going to eventually lead to the King James Bible. My point is, I'm showing you how the devil is setting this thing up, even while God is setting it up to get done what he wants to get done. And I'm going to show you how that thing works. We're looking at the inside of this. By the time we get to the middle of the 1800s, about 400 years later, we know that uh, Tischendorf and the Sinai Peninsula, St. Catherine's Monastery, uh, he finds, the, uh, he finds the, uh, another set of ancient Greek manuscripts 
and they are dubbed uh, Shiniaticus. And um, the Bible scholars absolutely go, I mean, you'd have thought they all won the billion-dollar lottery. They come to the point where they find that these two manuscripts, they date them around 200, 300, maybe 400 A.D. This will be five to 600 years earlier than the other manuscripts that they had that, uh, that your King James Bible comes from. And, of course, this particular manuscript found in the Vatican and found in, in the Sinai Peninsula and, uh, and St. Catharines have over 60,000 changes between uh, what the King James Greek text says and what this Greek text says. And uh, they are held as the best and the closest to the originals. And, uh, you know, the, the only problem is the guys that say that and the guys that make that determination and the guys that make that statement that brings these manuscripts up to the point where everybody falls into it uh, are guys like Benjamin Warfield. He lived about 1851 to 1921. A guy by the name of Griesbach, 1774. In your reading of your books, you will find a, a, a place called the Lockman Foundation. That's named after a guy by the name of Lachman in 1842. Tischendorf himself around 1869. Down the Southern Baptist Convention at Louisville, Kentucky uh, around 1860, right during the Civil War, up to about 1939. You had a guy that was, that was in charge of the Bible there in Louisville, uh, Dr. A.T. Robinson. Philip Schoff, our famous man who wrote seven volumes on church history, and uh, a guy by the name of Tregellis around 1857, uh, another guy by the name of Gregory around 1890. These are the men who told the world that these were the better manuscripts than the manuscripts of your King James Bible. These are the men who did the work. These are the men they, uh, who put out the word. These are the men who sponsored the idea that brought the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus into the limelight. Who are these guys? Well, some of them are unsaved linguists. What's a linguist? Someone who studies dead languages. Some of them were unsaved liberal churchmen. Some of them were uh, uh, Roman Catholic people themselves. Most of them are educators who were trained by the Jesuits, and along with them go the dumb, stupid Christians who ever failed to learn the lessons of history. In other words, the guys who started to put forth this idea were never part of a New Testament local church. Not a one of them was saved. They all believed and uh, were some form of the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. They all were trained by the Jesuits in places like Cambridge and Oxford in, in, uh, in England and other places in Europe. They had come to the point of their career in Bible exegesis, that is, studying the Scriptures, and they have no love for the Bible. They do not believe the Bible is a supernatural book. The thing that they get off on is the dead, dry, musty smell of an old dead book that goes back to about the second or third century that just lights them up because they think that that's the antiquity. And the older it is, the closer it has to be, the better it has to be. And it's these unsaved men who bring this to the forefront and the Christian scholars, because they have lost the concept of, of, of a relationship with God and have put the emphasis back to scholarship, the leaders of the Christian movement fall into the same trap that the church fathers did in the book in the church at Ephesus. And they forsake the clear teachings to the Word of God. They throw out Bible principles, something that this church can never do. Something that you can never do. And we are a remnant. We're not a mainstay. We are a remnant. This church is a remnant. It's a ragtag bunch of, of raggedy-tailed guys and gals who just love God and believe the book, but we are the remnant. They failed to prove all things, as First 
Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. They failed to prove the guys who were putting this out. It would be a lot like me bringing some boring, dead, unshaved guy into this church and having him teach you the Bible. You guys would rip him a new one before he got past the first sentence. You would not allow him to get away with anything. The first time he taught something wrong, the hands would go up and he would be overwhelmed. Why? Because you have been taught the biblical principle to prove all things. You have been taught that you just don't buy it because somebody's selling it. The second thing they did is they failed in Matthew chapter 7, where the Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them. Not one of these guys that I listed that put forth the great idea of this great new manuscript. There's no record of them even being saved, let alone being part of a New Testament local church, let alone ever winning anybody to Christ. They never had a Bible that they believed and worshipped and loved and, and read a one day of their life. They never won one soul to Christ. They never were part of any movement that God and the Spirit of God ever did anything in. But Bible Christianity failed and gave up on the biblical principles that by their fruits you shall know them. Instead, they let higher education dictate what was the Word of God. Uh, in 1881, I told you that England went first. In 1881, this is uh, almost to the 20th century. England was the fireball from 1600 right up to about 1900, this time period right here. But in the last 50, 100 years, the, the, Je the Jesuits had done their work. The fire had went out in England. And though there are places where she reverenced the book and still held the book, it's fast fading. And in 1881, England formed a revision committee to take the material of higher education and revise the Word of God. And that material would be Sinaitis and Vaticanus. When this committee sat down to make the Word of God more understandable, they sat down in a garden that had been planted, watered, and hoed for 300 years by the Jesuits, the apostate Lutherans, the German rationalists, Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, and all the other uh, Jesuit taught and trained uh, churchmen who had uh, put forth uh, all these ideas. It, it was all put in a nice package by Rome. All that was left was the bow to make this thing a present to the church. And that honor went to two men that you have to learn in church history that come up during this period of time who are the ones who are responsible with a damnable heresy that comes about and brings this whole package and it gets delivered. And their name is Westcott and Hort. As England and in time America turned to the revised Bible of the Dark Ages, we see in England, the lights begin to go out. We see it then move into America, and the lights begin to go out here, and the lights are just about out completely. Remember, no country ever survived 200 years once it turned its back and dumped the Bible. England is an absolute cesspool, and she had dumped it less than a, a little over 100 years ago. Europe is absolutely, ridiculously amoral, absolutely shot. There isn't anybody in Europe who believes anything remotely about God. Why? Because she's dumped the Word of God over 200 years ago, and she's done. Now, no study in church history would be complete without a study of these two men. The work that they do is acclaimed as the greatest work on biblical criticism. And biblical criticism is, we think of the word criticism, to criticize something, and that's exactly what it does. It critically analyzes the Bible to see if the Bible stands up under human scrutiny, if that isn't a laugh. And of course, it's the same scientific technique that you put up under the scientific scrutiny of gravity, the triple point of water, or whatever you want to do, 
is the same scrutiny that man takes an infallible supernatural book and then has the audacity to scrutinize it to come out on the other side, him deciding if it's the Word of God or not. I tell you what, do not get me started. Because, brother, it is an absolute anathema. Their work is acclaimed as the greatest work on biblical criticism and manuscript research ever done. They are hailed by every conservative college in this country as to the the thoroughness of their work. Their Greek text, which is essentially, it comes out in time once they do it, and what they did was this. Here's what the scholars do. They take Sinaitisk and Vaticanus, which is in a Greek manuscript, okay? And this is where you got to understand a little bit between what a manuscript is and what a text is. A Greek manuscript is basically the, the rolls of paper, or in the Sinaitis and Nevada Canis uh, arena, they are tan leather sheets. And on that are written scripture in Greek. These guys take these manuscripts, sit down with them, and take these manuscripts and bring it into a Greek New Testament form. In other words, they take all of these manuscripts. Many times they'll work from five or six families of manuscripts. They'll compare them. They'll get them all down. And what comes out of it is you take Sinianus and Vaticanus, maybe some other Hesychian uh, and Egyptian text, and you sit down with them, you put them all together, and you may not have a complete Bible, New Testament in any of them, but what you get when you get it all together is you come out with a complete New Testament in Greek. And this is called a Greek New Testament. It's that Greek New Testament that they use to translate the new Bibles. Westcott and Hort come out with what is commonly known as uh, in time, uh, Nestle's Greek New Testament. There's many, many Greek New Testaments. And uh, uh, I'd say there's probably 50 or 60 of them. Some of them are the Greek New Testaments from which your King J Bible comes from. That would be the text of Stephanus. He did one. Beza did another one. Uh, Erasmus did one. And you will find that your King James Bible is basically off the text of Stephanus, who got it off the text of Erasmus. And what Erasmus did is he took the Antiochian manuscripts, which were in Greek, and he compiled them into a Greek New Testament from which your King James Bible, a, a, a revision of the Bible has to come from a Greek text. You can't get a Bible revision without having a Greek text to work from. Westcott and Hort took the Sinaitis Vaticanus and other like Hesychian texts and brought them together, and out of that, they come out with a brand... You see, Stephanus' text had been around since about 1700. Erasmus' text had been around since 1500. And these texts that the King James Bible came from had been out for two or three hundred years. They were the standard. That's why they're called the Texas Receptus, or that name literally translated means the received text. What does that mean? It means that for 400 years, that was the text that was received by the common man as being the text that was the right text. What Westcott and Hort did is they took the Sinaitis and Vaticanus manuscripts, They went into a 30-year project. At the end of that 30-year project, they emerged with a Greek New Testament based off of Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. And that in time becomes Nestle's Greek New Testament. Nestle's Greek New Testament is the standard Greek text for every Bible college on planet Earth. Nestle's Greek text is the standard at BBC, Lynchburg, I don't care where. It is the absolute standard Greek New Testament text for everything that that is out there today. Absolutely the Greek text.
text. No question about it. And it's the standard Greek text for all the Baptist schools, all the colleges, and it is held up as the best New Testament Greek text there is. And here again, scholarship turns a blind eye to what a man in his walk before God and only looks at his academic credentials and cares nothing about the man's spiritual life. It seems the, man's, the main characteristic of scholarship is to overlook what a man believes as long as he's educated and has a degree. I call this the mystical scholars union or MSU. Uh, or birds of a feather flock together, however you want to put it. For if a person will study history and read history, you will find a bird sanctuary of feathered friends who believe nothing close to the Bible, who are setting the standards of the Christians for us to follow. And, uh, and these two guys are the kingpin. Brooke Foss Westcourt, he lives from 1825 to 1901. He was a student of Karl Marx's teachings. He's the Bishop of Durham in England and later on becomes a professor at Cambridge University. He's a, remember, he's a member of the Anglican Church, and we remember that the Anglican Church came into existence because Henry VIII wanted to get a divorce from, from his wife. New Testament scholars and church historians, they worked 28 years uh, to produce the, uh, the authoritative New Testament in the original Greek, which is the Nestle's Greek text. He's the definitive professor at Cambridge, 1870 to 1890. He was elevated as a bishop of Dunham in 1890, and he wrote numerous scholarly works on New Testament books and textual studies. By this time, uh, Cambridge is absolutely infested and has been destroyed by the Jesuit and the Oxford movement. His counterpart, Fenton John Anthony Hort, 1828 to 1892, is also a professor at Cambridge. He's a vicar of the Church of England, and he's also a Cambridge professor. He also is a scholar in Greek and, uh, and, a linguist, and, a, and a linguist studying the languages. And these two men take 28, almost 30 years, to take the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, form it into a New Testament Greek text, and then around 1881, somewhere in there, they came out with a new Greek text that absolutely shocked the world. And both these men get together under the pretense of Christianity, and the first thing you will notice about them, that neither one of them is, has ever been, ever will be, or ever was a member of a New Testament local church. They're not authorized by any local church under any situation. They come out of the Bible scholar mentality of Cambridge and Oxford. And when you look at the facts about their lives, you'll find that these two men who produced the Greek New Testament from which every new Bible on the market comes from today, you'll find the following facts. And facts are stubborn things. First of all, you'll find that there's nowhere in anywhere in history or their personal lives or anything they wrote, anything they said or anything they did, there's no record of their salvation anywhere. There's no record of them ever converting anybody else to Christ. There's never no record of either one of them ever holding a meeting anywhere where anybody got saved. There's no record or article or paper that they ever wrote that talked about uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the involvement of the New Testament ministry of people in the Great Commission and winning people to Christ. No, what they are famous for is they put together a textual theory. Remember that word? Remember we talked about out of the Counter-Reformation when the Renaissance period and science and philosophy that they all came about by a theory? Westcott and Hort put forth a textual theory. And everything in Bible Christianity from that point on in producing Bibles is built on that theory just like evolution is built on Carl uh, or on uh, Darwin's theory and everything down the line that is fake has to go back to some kind of theory. Their theory was that Sinaiticus and Vaticanus were older manuscripts, which is true, 
Therefore, the theory that they produced was older manuscripts have to be closer to the originals. Therefore, they have to be better than anything else we have. That was the theory that they put forth. And that theory, that theory was taken up by every Bible college professor, every learned man, and that theory, just like an evolutionist talks about evolution like it was a fact, when in reality it's still a theory, they talk about the better Bibles like it's a fact, when in reality it's all based on Westcott and Hort's textual theory. Westcott and Hort's theory, then they took the text of the Roman Catholic Church, the Sindiana Vaticanus, and when they, England was sitting down in 1881 to revise the uh, King James Bible, they took their manuscript and brought it into the revision committee. And it was that revision committee that made the first revision of the Bible of the God-time-honored King James 1611 that came out in 1611 and had never been revised for almost 400 years. Now, in 1881, with the work being done, we can go back and look at the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus and all of it coming together. It comes to the point now where it's brought into the revision committee, and in 1881, we find the first revision of the King James Bible. And that revision is the RSV of 1881, the Revised Standard Version, RSV of 1881. And they, they, they built that Bible based on the manuscripts that Westcott and Hort put forward the theory that it would be a better text and a better book uh, by which uh, it, it, all, it all would go better. And, of course, that didn't happen. This theory stated that the Roman Catholic text, Vaticanus and Sidiaticus, were closer to the originals and that the, than the received text. That the King James Bible was built on faulty manuscripts, and this leads to the RSV of 1881. The whole world of Bible scholarship, led by unsaved religious men, just like Westcott and Hortz, by this theory just like the unsaved guys that are in the secular world, and they're both unsaved, buy the theories of evolution, and they buy it hook, line, and sinker so they can keep their credibility. And, uh, uh, and nobody is questioning uh, any point of the scholarship of Westcott and Hort. They were brilliant men. They, without a doubt, were the greatest minds, educated minds, probably the world has ever seen. But what bothered me is the fact that they that when they split hell wide open, uh, when they slid into hell when they died, um, I mean, Westcott and Hort never even believed that the account of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 were real. When you start talking like this, people start to say, well, there he goes again, you know, and, uh, you know, picking on those guys, and those were good godly guys. Let me tell you something. Neither Westcott nor Hort believed the account in Genesis actually happened. They didn't believe the story of Adam and Eve. They didn't believe the story of Cain and Abel. They didn't believe the story of Noah's Ark. They both were baptized as infants and thought they had, had something to do with their salvation. Westcott writes to his fiancée from France in 1847. He tells of going into a Roman Catholic monastery and seeing an altar with Mary and a dead Christ. And he writes, and I quote, If I were alone, I could have knelt there for hours and prayed to Mary. Hort wrote the Westcott in October 17, 1865. He said, I have been persuaded for many years that Mary worship and Jesus worship have very much in common. West Hort, Westcott worshipped Mary so much that he renamed his own wife and named her Mary. I mean, uh, this thing, these guys are something else. Both Westcott and Hort believed in infant baptism for salvation. In the Revision Committee of 1881, both Westcott and Hort, the two main men, said that they would withdraw from the committee if Dr. Vance Smith was kicked off the committee. Why? Why did they want to kick him off? Because he was a Unitarianism. That's why. He taught that Jesus Christ was not God. He didn't believe in any account of the Bible. He's the forerunner of unity. He's a, he's, in the, he's, in the, he's a Unitarian, and he believed absolutely nothing about the Bible. But they, they're on, he's on the revision committee. And, of course, Westcott and Hort said they would withdraw if he would have been taken off. 
Neither Westcott nor Hort believed the Greek text or any other Greek text was the inspired word of God. They, divide, they, def, they, they denied verbal inspiration. They both thought the works of Charles Darwin and Karl Marx were great and believed in his form of evolution. Westcott Hort take out completely the supernatural element of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, and uh, uh, their, their product produces some of the most godless trash you've ever seen, uh, 75 years later at least, to the right Reader Digest Bible. Both Westcott and Hort thought the Bible was full of errors and mistakes, and they could fix it through their scholarship. Both men believed the Apocalypse should be in the Bible and equal to the Bible. Hort believed that the church took the place of Israel. Westcott believed that the, in the fatherhood of God, that everybody's the children of God. Both men taught that the devil was a power, not a person. Neither men believed heaven was a real place, but a state of mind. Both men denied the literal return of Christ. They denied the preexistence of Christ before Genesis 1.1. They neither believed that Christ was really God in the flesh. And is there anybody here in the right mind that would want to get uh, to heaven with those kind of beliefs? Now, anybody here after seeing the evidence and would talk, and take the, would anybody take a Bible that those clowns put out? And yet every Bible college in almost every country and in every church and every pastor, and most Christians do. And yet they've got the guts to call me a heretic. And let me tell you something. His son, after, his son said after uh, Westcott died, his son said, you can take it for what it's worth, but he wrote a book, and he said that his father used the occult and Satan in his translating of, of the Bible in the Greek text. Now, these two men who come out right out of the European think tanks, right out of the concept of philosophy, religion, science, and education, who are the, uh, you know, hailed as the great defenders of the faith, and uh, are the satanic implants from the religious depths of hell in all that they do. Through their revision committee of 1881 comes the destruction of the Reformation Bible, your King James Bible. After that point, there was only two Bibles on planet Earth. There was a Roman Catholic Douay Reims, and there was a King James 1611 authorized version. Now a new one is thrown into the ring. The committee is totally pro-Roman Catholic, pro-philosophy, and pro-science, and pro-education. And it makes up uh, in its makeup, along with uh, this, uh, um, uh, the concept of the Oxford movement, uh, which opened the English churches and the ministerial schools were already shot to the Roman Catholic influence. It ruins them even more. Westcott and Hort's theory opened a door to rid the world of the hated Antiochian Bible that was dripped in the blood of the New Testament martyrs for 1,800 years and was a trick of the devil to take the Christian authority away and replace it with what we already talked about, philosophy, religion, science, and education. And all of it follows the line of evolution. So now we begin to see, like the theory of evolution, Westcott and Hort's theory of, of manuscript evidence, and now we have our, our evolving Bible, a Bible that over the next 100 years... Uh, gets better and better and better. Westcott and Hort produced a fairy tale Bible for a Disneyland church. For every Bible from the RSV on is nothing more than a Roman Catholic a Bible that has been uh, thrown uh, into Christianity and has thrown us right back to the Dark Ages. The RSV of 1881, a little bit later on, the 1901 ASV, in 1950, the RSV again comes out, the 1960s, the new ASV, then the NIV, then the New English Bible, then the Living Bible, then the New World Translation, then Moffat and Phillips Translation, Goodspeed, uh, the American Bible, the Jerusalem Bible, the New King James Bible, and the New Schofield Reference Bible, with about 500 other ones thrown in. Every other, translation was ba every other translation is based on Westcott and Hort's philosophy of textual uh, mismanagement uh, or textual manuscript. Um, but in 1900, the lights go dim, and the old, uh, the old uh, prophecy of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 holds true. The devil is the angel of light, and as the Bible goes, country by country, men turn uh, in the book, uh, for uh, in the sword of God for a butter knife. We see the story back in the Old Testament with Saul. And I think that, you know, you go back in the Old Testament and you see uh, these great stories and how they really illustrate uh, what's going to happen. Saul, we all know, was the wrong king. And what Saul does back there in 1 Samuel chapter 12 and 13 and up through his reign, one of the things that he does is he does... 
exactly what they do here. He was the wrong guy. We got Saul and David. David is a picture of the man who loves God, loves the Word of God, and holds that book 100% true. Saul's a picture of the absolute total breakdown of what the Laodicean pastor is. You know what Saul does? Saul makes an alliance with the world. And he makes an alliance with the world, the Moabites and the Philistines, and all these tribes that they have been told to stay away from. He makes an alliance for them that they're gonna, he's going to let these nations make the swords for the nation of Israel. Now, you know and I know that the sword is a type of the Word of God in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 4. Here's a picture of a, of a guy who Israel's only defense to defend themselves was a sword. Your only defense to defend yourself is the sword, the Word of God. But Saul put all the blacksmiths in Egypt out of, or in Israel out of business. He put them all out of business, and he would not allow the Israeli blacksmiths to make any more swords. Now they were going to get their swords from the Philistines. And you know how that worked. The Philistines didn't make any swords. When they collected all the swords that Israel had, then they attacked them. And all they had to fight the world with, the Philistines, and the Bible tells you this, was their mattocks, their rakes, their shovels, uh, and, their, and, and their gardening tools that they had. Because they had no swords. And that's a picture of exactly what Christianity has done in the picture of Saul. Saul's a picture of the 1800, 1900 guy who comes up in the scene, and he actually takes the sword away from the people of God. And that's why the people of God today are absolutely defeated in everything that they do because they have lost their sword and they have nothing to fight with. Now, I'm going to take you Sunday when we get into Micah, and I'm going to show you what happens to any country once they lose that Bible, because that's exactly what happened to the nation of Israel under the prophets. And I'm going to show you how that thing worked. But you can rest assured that that's exactly what transpired. The 1881 gave way to the RSV. The 1901 gave way to the ASV. The 1950s gave away to the RSV, 1960s with the new ASV, then the NIV in 71, and then a whole host of other things that go on. The old Schofield Reference Bible for, for, for 100 years was a pretty decent reference Bible. But you had to be careful with it. If you look in the Schofield Reference Bible at the board of editors in the front, you will find that the men... And it's portrayed as Schofield's reference Bible. But you know what happens? A board of editors looks at that Bible. They look at his notes. They decide what his notes really meant to say. So even in the good old Schofield reference Bible, when you look at the front of the board of editors who was editing his Bible, you're going to find people who believe in baptism for salvation. So it's no wonder that when you get over there in Acts chapter 8 and it talks about uh, baptism with the Ethiopian eunuch, where it tells you in the old Schofield reference Bible that baptism has been known as a sacrament in your Schofield Bible. And the new Schofield Bible is even worse than that. The new Schofield Bible tells you back in Daniel when Daniel's in the fiery furnace, and it tells you in the King James Bible that God's in there with him. And the New Schofield Bible takes out God, put in a son of the gods. He makes the devil in the fire to get those children out. And these dumb, stupid God's people don't even have a clue in any way, shape, or form, or fashion what's happening and what's going on. And I'm telling you, that's where the whole thing breaks down and falls down. So by the 1900s, the lights go dim. And the old prophecy of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 holds true. The angel of light is transformed, and even his, even his devils are transformed into ministers of righteousness. As the Bible goes, country by country, as men turn in the book uh, that God gave them, and we see the apostasy creep in to the body of Christ. And uh, 
what you have left today, what you have left today is a remnant. Next week or next time we get back together, we're going to go back one more step. And I'm going to show you how that the Baptist church was God's institution and God's forge by which he accomplished everything he accomplished. It was true in Europe. It was the German Baptist. It was the Dutch Baptist. The first Baptist church in America was started by a guy by the name of John Clark. John Clark was a Waldensian. And John Clark started the first Baptist church up in Rhode Island. And he was out of the Waldensian stock from the Anabaptist. The Baptist church was the direct roots going right back to Antioch. They were God's force when to be reckoned with all down through the Philadelphian church age. In Europe, it was the Dutch Baptist. It was the German Baptist. It was the English Baptist. They were the ones that held the line, and they were the ones that came out of the other Bible groups, the Waldensians, the Huguenots, the Polyseans, and all of those groups. They all form around one doctrinal deal about anti-baptism of kids, and they're called Anabaptists. And they were God's mainstay in everything that happened in Europe, and certainly everything happened in America. And next time we get together, I'm going to take it, and I'm going to show you exactly how the devil cracked that concept and destroyed the Baptist church and how the charismatic, the fruity, tooty, charismatic got ahead of the Baptist church and now they are running everything on this planet. And the Baptists are sitting down looking stupid. And we'll talk about that next time when we get into this. A lot of information tonight, but... You've got to see how this thing works. You've got to see how this thing works. Well, let's close out in prayer.